Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, uh, including the ones who are with us but who you can't see, who are in the overflow. Uh, this evening we have the prospect of a very interesting and, and lively time because the LSE Annual Fund, to which we're extremely grateful, has made it possible for us to have with us uh, Bjorn Lomborg, who I'll introduce in a moment. The fund, I should say, especially since the director is still with us, has been tremendously active this year. It's brought us a lot of really excellent lectures, so we're very grateful to it for making this possible as well. The topic could not be more topical. We are in the run-up to the Bali Climate Conference in December, and the whole issue of global warming has rocketed to the top of the political agenda over the last year in a way which really does demand explanation. I remember a book that an old friend of mine, James Rosenau, wrote many, many years ago called Turbulence in World Politics. And what Jim says in his book, and it's a good bit of general advice, and it certainly applies here, and I'm sure both of our speakers will be using this sort of insight this evening, is that whenever you have a phenomenon like this sudden rocketing appearance of the global warming issue at the center of the political agenda, you ask, of what is this an instance? Because clearly it's something to do with climate change, but it's also clearly to do with other things. And I suspect that we're going to be hearing uh, quite a lot about that in the course of this evening. Our lecturer is Bjorn Lomborg. I was going to say he requires no introduction, but let me briefly introduce him and say that he is the sceptical environmentalist. Um, he is an adjunct professor uh, in Copenhagen and now runs the Copenhagen Consensus, but he first came to public attention when Cambridge University Press published his big book, The Sceptical Environmentalist, which produced, how shall we put this uh, antiseptically, a storm of discussion. Um, he's a man whose views are eloquent and you never have any doubt what he thinks, although many people don't agree with him. And we're going to be extremely fortunate to have his views about his new book, which is called Cool It, and copies are outside. They're available for sale at a special price, I'm told to tell you. And at the end of it, Bjorn will be signing uh, for those who want signatures. The order of business this evening is that I am going to give the floor to Bjorn Lomborg in just a moment, and then my colleague Simon Dietz will be following after the lecture uh, with some comments. After we've had our two speakers, we'll then open to plenary discussion under the normal rules of our operations. We'll carry on until 8 o'clock. So without further ado, Bjorn Lomberg, welcome to the LSE. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, I'm basically going to give you the short overview of the book. Um, so, but don't believe that means you shouldn't buy it. But, uh, but, but the idea really is to get us a sense of how should we think about climate change. I'm going to disappoint you a little bit because I'm not going to talk so much about uh, what are the psychology behind it, but more, I hope, try to argue some, uh, some of the salient points in why we should be uh, considering our, our consensus and considering our understanding both of global warming as a problem, how we should be viewing it, how we should deal with it. And uh, so at, at the end of uh, talking about what kind of priorities should we be making? Uh, I should just perhaps say this is, this is the slide I've, uh, I've shown for six years, and this basically summarized what I try to do with, uh, with uh, both the skeptical environmentalist and also uh, this new book and the other things that I'm trying to look at. It really just does two points. 
We need a sense of proportion. We need to get a sense of, is this a big problem, a small problem? What are the impacts of uh, any one particular instance of uh, environmental concern or any other concern? And we need to have a proper sense of what is our concern here because we need, at the end of the day, to come down to a point of realizing we need priorities. We need to start talking about, so should we worry a lot or a little about these things compared to all the other things, all the other problems that are there? And my point is simply to say if we're uh, improbably worrying about issues, like if we're over-worrying, but also if we under-worry about some environmental problems, we're unlikely to make good prioritization at the end of the discussion. So the point I try to make is first to talk about what is actually, uh, I would argue, the issues with climate change, what are the impacts, but also then to come back to saying, so how should we actually prioritize? So I'm simply just going to do uh, a, a talk about what should we do on global warming on these four <laughs> simple points. This, is, um, uh, this, of course, is a discussion that you could say in many ways uh, is, uh, has been put very much on the agenda by Al Gore. Al Gore and I gave a presentation for Congress in, in March uh, this year. Um, this picture is in the, in the second before Gore realizes who I am. Uh, but, <laughs> but, the, but the point here is to say that I would very much think this is really the discussion that we're all trying to have, namely to say, what should we actually do about global warming? And I'm simply going to try to make four very simple, very basic points, although uh, some of them are going to take a little longer to talk about. The first one is global warming is real and it's man-made. So let's just get that out of the way. Um, and I think we should say it's on the agenda, thanks to Al Gore. This is certainly an instance where we should say thank you to Al Gore. He's put it especially to the American public uh, and especially to a large number of the constituents that had the tendency to say, oh, it's all a hoax, it's all a left-wing conspiracy to raise taxes or something like that. No, it's not. Global warming is real, it's, uh, and it's man-made. I would argue that our best information comes from the UN Climate Panel, the so-called IPCC, the likely temperature rise by 2100, that's the A1B scenario, the standard scenario, if you will, is 2.6 degrees centigrade Fahrenheit up from what it is today. The total cost of global warming is not by any standards trivial. It's about $15 trillion. On the other hand, we also need to realize this is not the end of the 21st century. This is not even the most important part of the 21st century. It's about half a percentage point of the 21st century uh, income. So again, we need to get a sense of proportion. $15 trillion is certainly something that ought to make most people sit up straight and think about how we deal with this issue. On the other hand, we should not take it too far to the other corner and say this is the end of civilization in any meaningful way. And that is why I'm arguing we need a smart strategy. In many ways, what I'm trying to say is we need to understand we need to get away from this. It's a hoax. No, it's a catastrophe unproductive uh, a dichotomy that I would argue that we've had for a very long time. It's not a hoax, but it's not an unmitigated catastrophe either. And that's, of course, the second part that I'd like to get to. Yes, climate change is real. Yes, it is man-made. But the consequences often vastly overstate it, and that leads to bad, poor judgment. And here, of course, we likewise also need to uh, uh, look at Al Gore, but certainly not only him. On the other hand, I would say this is perhaps where we need to thank Al Gore slightly less. Uh, Al Gore and many, many others have contributed to the sense of, of immediate urgency on, on global warming, the idea of calling it a planetary emergency. And again, I'm just pulling out Al Gore because he's so visible, but of course we hear this all the time. Um, and I would argue this, this is a typical sentence that you'll read in many papers, uh, the idea that we have just 10 years to avert a major catastrophe that could send our entire planet into a tailspin of epic destruction involving extreme weather, floods, droughts, epidemics, and killer heat waves beyond anything we've ever experienced. If this is true, of course, this means we should really do a lot right now. But let's perhaps 
try to get a sense of proportion. Again, I'd love to go through all of these things, but we just have 40 minutes, and I'm running down on those, so I'll just go through four of the central issues. I'll try to take a look at heat deaths, sea level rise, hurricanes, and malaria. Try to give a sense of some of the problems that Al Gore pulls out here. And I'll, I will argue that while this is not entirely incorrect, it's certainly not very informative either for our decisions. So try, let's uh, take a look, for instance, at heat deaths. Uh, with increasing temperatures, we're going to see more heat deaths. That's uh, the point that's been made several times. That's absolutely true. With increasing temperatures, we're going to see more heat waves. More heat waves mean more people dead. In the UK, it's estimated that we'll see about 2,000 more heat deaths by mid-century. That's certainly a point we should pull, uh, pull out and, and showcase. On the other hand, it also seems to me that we, real, we need to realize that we, if we have increasing temperatures, we're also going to see fewer cold waves. We're going to see fewer cold deaths. And since global warming both work by increasing uh, uh, winter and, and, and uh, low temperatures more than it increases summer and high temperatures, and since uh, 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 cold deaths vastly outweigh heat deaths most uh, places on the planet, it seems reasonable that this is not an unimportant uh, thing to leave out. And actually, it turns out that if we estimate for the UK, uh, we estimate that we're going to see about 20,000 fewer cold deaths by 2050 in the UK. It seems to me that we're not giving a public and relevant information by only stating this number and not this number. And, of course, you could say, well, this is only Britain, and, of course, the guy comes from Denmark. What do you expect? Uh, but, actually, this is also true in general. If we look at the, uh, at the planet, this is the only globally available number I'm aware of. Uh, there's been a lot of estimates on individual countries, but this is the only global one. Uh, actually estimating them by 2050, we're going to see 1.4 million fewer deaths uh, 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 compounded by 1.8 million uh, fewer cold deaths, about 400,000 uh, 400, uh, extra heat deaths. Now, notice if this was the only impact of global warming, I would actually be making the argument, hey, we should get more of it. But that's not what I'm saying, right? This is one instance, and there are many others, and generally global warming will have more problems than it will have benefits. And we need to recognize that. That's why it's a problem. That's why we need to fix it. But on the other hand, I would argue, unless we have both sides of those arguments, we're unlikely to be able to make good judgments. So when we hear a story like, yes, we'll see more heat deaths, but we avoid to talk about we'll see fewer cold deaths, we're not giving an adequate information to actually make good judgments. Likewise, of course, we need to start having a conversation about what should we actually do. Well, if we look, this is for Philadelphia, but it looks like this is true for most American cities, at least. If we see the temperature, the, uh, the afternoon temperature out this way, if this is for the 1960s, the optimum temperature is around 23 degrees centigrade. I think it's about 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, if it gets much colder, people start dying. If it gets much warmer, people start dying. Notice they, they tend to die much faster if it gets uh, warmer. Uh, however, it should also be noted that the optimal temperature is close to the uh, average summer temperature, which is why we see many more cold deaths rather than heat deaths, because it's only a few days that you're above, but many, many days you're below. But notice what's happened in the 70s, 80s, 90s. We've obviously seen a, a dramatic increase in our ability to keep people alive, but we've also seen there's still the cold deaths, but there's no heat deaths. This, of course, is because of air conditioning. So again, if we actually care about people, a lot of people will talk about the heat deaths in France and other places in 2003. If we actually want to help these people, it's curious that we go out and say, see, 
this shows that we need to do Kyoto because essentially what we're telling these people who died in France, or at least their uh, descendants, is that we're going to make sure that future generations, yes, they are going to swelter more, yes, they are going to die more, but slightly less, a little slower die more and more. That's not a very good message, right? Of course, if we actually care about those people, we should go, for instance, and give them air conditioning. I'm not saying that should be the only thing. Of course, we should also worry about how we, for instance, allocate cities so that they are cooler, that we have more uh, 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 green spaces, we have more water, uh, we have perhaps more white surfaces. But again, we need to have a conversation about, and that's one of the things that we lack in this discussion in climate change, what is the right answer to the questions that we ask? Very often we ask questions, and it seems like every question in this discussion has to be answered with the, uh, with the, uh, uh, with the statement, we need to cut carbon emissions. Well, sometimes that's the best way, but surely it's not always the best way. And that's one of the places where I would argue, well, if we actually care about these people, maybe there are also other things that we should be focusing on. Let's try and take a look at, again at sea level rise. Yes, sea levels will rise. That's one of the things that will be un unequivocally uh, bad. But again, it's not a catastrophe. Uh, the UN climate panel estimates somewhere between uh, 18 and 59 centimeters. The uh, standard estimate, again, is about 30 centimeters. It's not the Al Gore six meters, which, of course, uh, looks a lot better when you show how most of Florida is going to uh, be inundated, but it's not very relevant. Again, it's about a foot, and we need to get a sense of proportion. That's a problem, but it's not end of mankind. And, of course, uh, we actually need to know that for uh, uh, over the last 150 years, sea levels also rose about a foot. Yet I would challenge most people to have even noticed. It's obvious if you ask a very old person who have lived through most of the 20th century is likely to be a woman, and ask her, you know, what happened in the 20th century? What were the important things? She'll talk about the world wars, the suffrage for women, maybe the IT revolution, but it's very unlikely she'll say, oh, and sea levels rose. Right? <laughs> and that's important because it was a problem, but it was a problem we fixed. And so, again, we need to get a sense of proportion. But, of course, we still worry about other places. We do worry about, for instance, people getting flooded. Uh, right now, about 10 million people get flooded by 2100 with a sea, uh, foot of sea level rise. Uh, the UN climate panel estimate that we'll see 100 million people getting flooded. That's obviously very important. Uh, it's also important to read the footnote in that. That is basically assuming no change, basically assuming that people will use the same amount of money, basically that they'll be standing around and noticing how sea levels are starting to lap up their feet and say, whoa, I'm going to drown in 50 years, but stand there. That's not very likely to happen. Of course, what is actually likely to happen also with, uh, uh, with, uh, with uh, uh, societies being much richer, the UN estimate that the average person in the developing world will be about 12 times richer by the end of the century. That is more rich than we are today. It's likely that if they spend the same proportion of their income, we're actually more likely to see about a million people getting flooded. And, of course, the point is this million people, yes, we should definitely help them, but that's a poverty issue much more than it's a, uh, a natural science issue. This really is a question of saying what is likely to happen with richness versus what is likely to happen with sea level rise. And let me point that even more strongly. The Maldives, that's one of the good examples of, of, of climate change, yes, uh, if we just look at a one-foot sea level rise and if we just look at the geodesics of, of the Maldives, they're going to flood about 77% of the dry land of the Maldives. Uh, that will have a cost of 121% of their GDP. But, of course, we also need to know what's the alternative option. Well, it's estimated that at 0.04% of their GDP, they can safeguard virtually every square meter of their dry land. Will they do so? Oh, sure. Of course you'll spend 0.04% to avoid a loss of 121%. Makes sense, which is also, by the way, why we haven't lost very much land. Probably gained overall uh, land while sea levels rose a foot in the last 150 years. 
But the important point here is, of course, to realize this is not just true for Moldites. I mean, they're very scenic. It's also true for Tulavu and Micronesia. But perhaps much more importantly, it's also true for Vietnam and Bangladesh. But let me also just look at one other instance, because there are two different ways that we can imagine uh, sort of going down different paths. Uh, the uh, the uh, UN Climate Panel has a scenario that's basically focused on economics, and it has one that's basically focused on environment. We could call it the George Bush and the Al Gore scenario. Uh, and, and the point is, in a sense, if you go down just the economic, where you're just focused on economics, we're going to be much richer by 2100. But we'll also have sea level rise in this scenario about 34 centimeters. So we'll be about $73,000 per person per year in 2100, but a sea level rise of about 34 centimeters. We could also go down a B scenario, which is a much more environmentally concerned scenario. We'll still be richer, we'll be about one-third less rich, about $50,000 per person per year. But we'll also have one-third less sea level rise at about uh, 22 centimeters. Now, you'd imagine that if we'd left, chosen the scenario that, yes, we are a little poorer, but we have also left our descendants less of an environmental problem, that would actually be a good thing, at least on the sea level rise front. It turned out that you were wrong. At lower emission levels, yes, we'd see lower sea level rise, but we'd also have lower wealth. And it actually turns out that in these models, at least, we'll see three times more lost land for the Maldives, but also for Tulabu and Micronesia and Vietnam and Bangladesh. Again, we have to question, and this is again where I want to us to start thinking about, this is not just a question about what we do about carbon dioxide. It's as much a question about what do we do about economics? What do we actually choose to do in the future? And even our well-intentioned efforts to make people less flooded could actually turn out, because we end up also making them poorer, could actually end up making them more flooded, not less. The third one, we, uh, uh, hurricanes are going to get ever increasing in strength and we're going to see ever more damage. The last part is very, very true. Uh, this is the uh, damage cost over the last century and, and uh, 105 years of the U.S. Uh, basically what you see is virtually nothing here. Uh, what you see up here is uh, Hurricane Andrew, if anyone remembers, in 1992, the most costly hurricane in the U.S. Uh, then. Then it was uh, uh, out, out, uh, outperformed by 2004. That doesn't sound right, but you know what I mean. Uh, and, and again, uh, it was bested by the uh, 2005, especially, of course, the Katrina in the U.S. If anything, this does seem to indicate that we're seeing a dramatic rise in the hurricane damage. Very often, this is attributed mainly to climate change. This would be wrong. It doesn't mean that there might not also be a climate signal in there, but the vast majority of this is due to something entirely different, namely the fact that there are more people with more stuff closer to harm's way. Uh, basically, if you look at it in, in Florida, for instance, uh, we've, sorry, for the U.S., we've seen uh, uh, the population of the century has about quadrupled, whereas the, impact, uh, the Florida coastal population has increased 50-fold. It's not a big surprise that you see a lot more damage when people move close to where hurricanes hit. Moreover, they're also much richer, so it's no surprise that we're going to see more and more damage. Actually, researchers then said, well, what would happen if we take, took all the hurricanes that hit the U.S. over the last 105 years and let them hit a hypothetical U.S. of today? What would happen if they'd all hit the U.S. as it looks in 2007? This is the difference. And, of course, what it shows us is the most important hurricane to hit the U.S., the most damaging one would have been the great Miami storm, a hurricane of 1926, uh, which actually was unnamed until they realized it would really have been bad. Uh, but the point is, of course, this tore right down uh, through downtown Miami. But back then, there were only sheds. That's not entirely true, but it, was, it, it, it gives you the picture. It actually killed 2,000 people, more than what died in, in Katrina. But there wasn't very much stuff to damage. 
Likewise, the second largest was the Great Galveston Hurricane in 1900, which actually is the most uh, damaging hurricane in the U.S. history, killing about 15,000 people. Only the third biggest was Katrina. And so, again, what we have to remember here is the vast majority of the increase is due to social factors. Actually, if you look at Hurricane Andrew, that's dramatically increased. The British Insurance Association estimate that the Hurricane Andrew would have been twice as expensive had it hit 10 years later in 2002. So what we're basically seeing is, yes, damage costs are going rising rapidly, but they're mainly due to social factors. This does not mean that there's not probably also a weak climate signal, signal underneath. Uh, estimates show that we will probably see stronger hurricanes, probably not more hurricanes, but probably stronger hurricanes. But at least we need to get a sense of proportion. If we imagine that we just have a situation where climate changes, but social factors stay constant till mid-century, we're likely to see it with reasonable worst-case assumptions. We're likely to see about a 10% increase in the damage cost. If we, on the other hand, imagine that there's no climate change, but there's a social vulnerability change, as we've seen over the past century, uh, sorry, decades, that people move closer to uh, the coast and we have more and more stuff there, we're likely to see a doubling every 10 years or almost a 500% increase by, uh, by mid-century. The question I would like us to think about is, do we do more service for our descendants? Do we do more service for the people of 2050 to try to cut this or try to cut this? It's a little rhetorical, but it's nevertheless not the question that we typically ask. And, of course, we also need to realize, most people realize how we should do this. This is, for instance, through the Kyoto Protocol. We can actually cut about 0.5 percentage point here. Not very much. Up here, we virtually have no idea how we do that, but that's because we lack that kind of conversation. But in reality, of course, it's about making sure we don't subsidize insurance uh, for, uh, to build in irresponsibly places, in irresponsible places. It's about better building codes. It's about better enforcement of building codes. It's about land zoning. It's about wetlands, for instance, in front of uh, New Orleans. And, of course, it's also about better levees, for instance, again, for New Orleans. We believe that we could probably reduce this by 50 to 80 percentage, uh, 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 by 50 to 80 percent, or about 250 to 400 percentage points, fairly easy, at much lower cost than the Kyoto Protocol. So again, my question is, do we want to cut a little bit on this or much, much more here at lower cost? It seems to me that we should have this conversation and not necessarily every time we have a climate question say, oh, cut carbon emissions. Maybe that's a good idea. Maybe there are other and better ideas first. The last one is malaria. A lot of people will tell, uh, tell you that uh, with increasing temperatures and clearly also Al Gore, uh, we're going to see more malaria. That's again true. <coughs> We're likely to see, because malaria is weakly connected to heat, we're likely to see more malaria, probably about 3.2% at the end of the century. Uh, so if we do the Kyoto Protocol, we can probably avoid about 0.2% extra malaria by the end of the century. That's nice. But, of course, malaria is predominantly connected to wealth. I mean, basically, if you're rich, you don't get malaria. If you do get malaria, you get treated. If you're poor, you get malaria and you die from malaria. And so, again, the question is, why do we care so fairly much about doing something about 0.2% malaria in 100 years and care so fairly little about the fact that there's 100% right now? Or, again, to put it perhaps more starkly, if we do the Kyoto Protocol, we can avoid 1,400 deaths every year throughout the century. Now, I certainly want to be part of a civilization that, uh, that cares about 1,400 lives. But it would seem to me that perhaps we should also, and I would rather want to be part of a civilization that actually cares about saving 850,000 lives every year through cheap, available malaria policies, basically distributing mosquito nets and artemisinin. 
The point is, of course, also that Kyoto costs $180 billion. Malaria would cost $3 billion, about one-sixtieth of the cost. Or to put it differently, for every time you save one human being's life through uh, climate change policies for malaria, you could have saved 36,000 lives through malaria policies. Again, do we care about the people with malaria? Then perhaps we should do other and more important things. What I want to reel back again is to say, yes, we hear those statements, and they're all true in a sense. Yes, we're going to see more malaria, but is climate the right way? Yes, we're going to see more damage from, uh, from hurricanes, but is climate policies the right way to go? Yes, we're going to see more heat deaths, but should we also not point out we're going to see more cold deaths? Yes, we're going to see sea level rises, but again, how do we actually help the Maldives, the Vietnams, the Bangladeshs, and everyone else better? Again, we need to have that conversation, and we don't. I would argue that because we're being scared witless, we're perhaps not making the best possible judgments. And that, of course, leads to the third point. So I've made two points. Climate change is real. It's man-made, but it's often vastly saturated. We need to get back to having smarter and better strategies. I would argue the ones that we're being presented with, like Kyoto or the EU 20% cuts, are basically very high-cost ways of doing very little, not very smart. Uh, this is the Kyoto Protocol. Uh, uh, let's just remember... Uh, that if we imagine that everybody had actually signed the Kyoto Protocol and stuck with it throughout this, it's, uh, the period it was intended for, it named five years, it would have postponed global warming by seven days at the end of the century. Not a whole lot. Even if we actually extended this throughout the rest of the century, it would still only mean that we would postpone global warming by about five years at the end of the, uh, at the century. Uh, this is the uh, graph without, temper, uh, without uh, uh, Kyoto, this is the graph with Kyoto. And mind you, this actually requires everybody not only to sign it, but also to live up to it, which actually a lot of these participants have not, U.S. and Australia notoriously being outside, but also Canada, Japan, a uh, fair number of the southern European countries having a hard time even living up to the things that they have been very, very vocal about saying they should do. So this is a very, very uh, best-case scenario, yet we would only do very, very little at the end of the century at a fairly high cost. This is the average of all the macroeconomic models, $180 billion. It could be $50 billion, It could be $400 billion. I'm not making that argument. I'm simply making the, the average of it, but it's certainly not a cheap option. Uh, we also need to – so, oh, okay, I, made, I left that out. But the, but the, uh, the uh, uh, EU new proposal will basically cost $90 billion and, and postpone global warming by two years at the end of the century. So, again, the point is not very much good. The point is that most of the economic models, actually all the peer-reviewed cost-benefit studies, uh, show that we should do very little about climate change right now. Uh, the reason why, uh, while well, we see peer-reviewed cost and damages, the damages from climate is about here. The cost of doing something are greater. And, of course, uh, as I'm sure you'll also talk a little bit about the story, and I, I pop this, this in, uh, I, obviously I have a longer discussion in the book, but I think... Basically, what you see here is the Stern Review, which is not peer-reviewed, uh, uh, basically showed us much, much greater damages and surprisingly lower cost than, uh, than what the peer-reviewed studies show. And that's why I would argue that most, uh, most uh, economists actually uh, find the Stern Review fairly little convincing, uh, since it was the only one also coming out with a very different uh, uh, point. Yes, we should do some, but we shouldn't do very much. What we need to start thinking about is instead of having the discussion about let's do Kyoto, let's do more than Kyoto, 
Maybe we should have a conversation about are there smarter ways. Before I just go there, I just want to take one more thing because basically this encapsulates in many ways what I think is missing in this conversation, that we have a tendency to only focus on one solution, and very often it's just not the right one. Uh, take polar bears. Yes, polar bears are going to have a harder time uh, with less Arctic summer ice, uh, uh, just exactly how much is, is a, a matter of debate, but clearly it will be a problem for polar bears. But what can we do? Again, we need to have a sense of proportion. Most people will say we need to do the Kyoto Protocol even more. But if you look at what the Kyoto Protocol will do, it'll save about one polar bear every year. Now, I'm happy to save a polar bear. <laughs> but it doesn't look like that's the way to go forward. And again, one of the things that blow my mind is that we talk about making trillion dollars of public policy to save a polar bear when we realize that we shoot a 1,000 every year. It wouldn't be easier to stop shooting them first. <laughs> and it's not just, I mean, obviously it's a little funny, but, it, but it's actually a little tragic too, right, that we have this conversation and we only focus on one solution when there's such an obvious one that presumably would cost very, very little apart from policing. Uh, so the idea here is, again, to say we need to get a conversation back on how can we actually do good things both for the planet, both for humanity, and also, of course, tackle global warming in the long run. The point really is, and the problem both from, from the Stern report and whole uh, 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 cost-benefit analysis and the general idea of what we're trying to do is basically that the cost of cutting CO2 is fairly high. It's probably about $20 per ton. This, of course, depends dramatically on what exactly we're talking about, but let's just take it as a rule of thumb kind of thing, whereas the benefit of cutting CO2 is fairly much lower uh, by the, uh, uh, the median of the uh, uh, biggest uh, uh, meta-study shows that it's $2.00. Uh, the maximum is $14, uh, that is at uh, the 90 percentile. So basically, we have a situation where we're paying fairly much to do fairly little good. Not a great idea. Maybe we should find a better way forward. Uh, and the, the idea, in a sense, is to say that right now, we're trying to get people, and I'm just using this as a metaphor with the solar panels, but we're trying to get people to install solar panels. Solar panels cost about 10 times as much as fossil fuels. What does that mean? It means rich people in rich countries will put up a few. Notice how they all, always put them in sloped roofs so people can see how good they are. Uh, but, of course, most people in rich countries will not do so. And, of course, virtually no one in the poor world is going to put up solar panels because they're just way too expensive. Now, the question is, so is the right way to go forward to try to cajole more people to put solar panels on, on their rooftops? Essentially saying, yeah, I know you're going to pay a lot for it, but at least it'll do a tiny bit of good to everyone else 100 years from now. That's a very, very hard bargain. Maybe we should start thinking about instead making solar panels cheaper. Imagine if we could actually make them cheaper than fossil fuels. We wouldn't have to have this conversation. People obviously would just simply do it. I'm not saying that we can get there. I'm certainly not saying we can get there anytime soon. But I'm at least saying, shouldn't we have a consideration instead of thinking about cutting at very high cost, uh, which has a very uh, small benefit, and just keep at it? Maybe instead investing in cutting the cost of cutting CO2. And that's basically where I would argue we should find most of the solution. It's a long-term problem. We need a long-term solution. We need ways to find much cheaper technologies because it's the only way that we can get our kids and grandkids to really invest. But perhaps more importantly, it's the only way that we can get China and India to invest because, quite frankly, they're much more important priorities right now, like feeding their kids and giving them their education and, and uh, uh, curing them from infectious diseases. So, again, my argument is to say, and that would be my proposal to actually the, uh, the 
the next Kyoto Protocol, is, as they talk about right now, is going to be signed in Copenhagen uh, in 2009. And my proposal, at least for that, would be to say, let's, in, let's all promise to invest 0.05% of GDP in research, development, and demonstration of non-carbon emitting energy technologies. Basically, make sure that we have an incredible boost in the amount of spending that we have. I'm proposing a tenfold increase in the amount of spending that we have on research and development and non-carbon emitting energy technology. I'm not going to say what that should be. That might be solar, maybe wind, fusion, fission, conservation, carbon storage. The point is we'll probably need a lot of these different ones. But the idea is to say it's ten times cheaper, roughly ten times cheaper than Kyoto, yet it provides ten times more investment in research and development. If what we want is to make sure that we deal with this problem in the long term, it is the better technology. It's not the cuts of carbon emissions right now. It's about making sure that we can make tons, lots of uh, tons of cuts later on. So basically, we have to get rid of this, ooh, it feels really nice and, you know, we feel fussy about the fact that we're cutting carbon emissions right now. But if it's just a couple of tons, it, yeah, it makes us feel good, but it actually has, as the Kyoto Protocol very clearly shows, has very little impact. What we need to start thinking about is how we can drive technology so that we can get much cheaper ways of cutting carbon emission come mid-century so both our kids and grandkids will do it, but also and especially so the uh, Chinese and Indians. Uh, preliminary studies show that this will have the possibility to solve global warming in the medium term, basically uh, allows a stabilization around 550. I'm not going to put my head on the block on that because we simply don't have enough studies on that, but at least that's the indication. And my argument would also be to say this is a much more likely follow-up to Kyoto to come because it's both cheaper, it has much more chance of working, and ultimately it'll probably do a lot more good. But, and that's the fourth point. So I'm making three other points. Global warming is real. It's very often overstated, but we need to get smarter, and that's why we need to get smarter strategies. But I also need to point out this last one because this really is the discussion about the global conversation about climate change. My God, there are other problems we also need to fix at the same time. Um, we, Al Gore talks very much, and I think this is the right way to frame it. He talks very much about this being our generational mission. We need to think about how do we want to be remembered as a human species? How do we want our kids and grandkids to remember us? I think that's a great opportunity. We really should be thinking about that. Curiously enough, it seems like a lot of people in the climate debate, and certainly Al Gore, seems to want to be remembered for spending $180 billion doing virtually no good 100 years from now. It doesn't strike me to be the best way to want to be remembered. And just to give you a sense of proportion, again, the UN estimates for half, less than half that amount. We could probably solve pretty much all basic human problems right now. We could give clean drinking water, sanitation, basic health care, and education to every single human being on the planet. I just want you to think about how would you like to be remembered, spending twice as much doing virtually no good 100 years from now, or solving all major basic problems at half the cost. I mean, we laugh a little, but I mean, honestly, this is the conversation that we're having. We're focusing so much on one issue that it seems to me that we're forgetting that there are many other things that also need to be fixed. And notice this is not a short-term thing versus a long-term thing. This is a long-term thing. That's true. This will help 100 years from now. This will help right now. But, of course, that will also help in 100 years if we make people richer, if we make them better, if we make sure that their parents don't die. It also means that their sons their next generations will do much, much better, that they will be much more resilient, much stronger, much richer societies that can handle much better all the different things that uh, the future, including uh, climate change, will throw at them. So it really is a question of saying, should we make a weak argument that's only long-term, or should we make a great 
contribution that's both short and long term. And that's why I think, you know, that's the thing I've been involved in, the Copenhagen Consensus, trying to think about what are the top things that we can do. Uh, they, they came out, we asked them, the world's top economists, including four Nobel laureates, what are the best things, where do you, do you get the most bang for the buck to help the world? They came out and said, prevent HIV AIDS in sub-Saharan Africa. That's a huge, uh, 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 great, uh, I can't even say that. That's a very good investment. Uh, and micronutrient malnutrition, free trade, malaria, they actually went so far as to tell us for every dollar we invest, we end up doing an enormous amount of good for every dollar in HIV AIDS. Uh, we probably do about $40 worth of good, uh, $30 in micronutrient malnutrition, $15 in free trade. That's basically paying off first world farmers and, and $10 in, on preventing malaria. Those are great investments. Likewise, they also told us at the other end, if we invest in the Kyoto Protocol, we probably do some good, but only very little, about 30 cents for every dollar, which is why they also called it a bad investment. The main point here is to say we need smarter strategies. We need to remember that these are our generational objectives but we also need to find much smarter ways to deal with climate change in the long run. Those are the things that we have to muster. Those are the things I certainly would want us to be remembered for for our generation. And so summing up, and then I'll shut up, too, uh, is really to say global warming is real. Absolutely. It's man-made. We need to fix it, but we need to fix it smartly. Yes, we should have a CO2 tax of $2 or the, uh, or the, or the uh, damage cost, uh, about $2 per ton, but that's really not going to solve the problem. And that's why we need dramatically increased research and development to make sure that we have technologies available for our kids and grandkids, the Chinese and the Indians, so that we actually can solve this problem come mid-century. That's the smart solutions that we need, but we also need to remember our generational mission is many other things, and that's the dual thing that we have to make, make sure we, we manage to do, that we both talk sensibly about climate, that we cool our conversation and actually start talking about real solutions that are both going to work, that are going to actually happen, that are going to have real impacts in the long run. But also, of course, that we remember this is not the only conversation and we need to worry about many other things if we're actually going to leave a legacy we're going to be proud of for our kids and grandkids. Thank you. Just before Simon starts, since we started a few minutes late because of assembling everybody, if everybody agrees, we'll go on a little bit after 8 o'clock if the questioning demands. But straight over to Simon. Thank you, Gwyn. Ladies and gentlemen, we may never have seen an instance of environmental pollution to challenge our analysis and evaluation quite like climate change. It is global in its causes and consequences. It is long-term and persistent because an emission of carbon dioxide today will stay in the atmosphere for several hundred years. The climate system responds to emissions of greenhouse gases with a lag, and ecological, environmental and social systems respond to changes in the climate system with a lag. It is also highly uncertain, not only for the obvious reason that we're trying to foresee the future, but also because we're trying to predict changes in a complex, chaotic and thus poorly understood system. But the worst scenarios are very worrying. Now, we know from the, the very distant past, from our estimates of what happened millions of years ago, that the climate system can change abruptly within just 100 years or even less, can essentially flip from one state to another. Now, climate skeptics often look at the geological record and draw reassurance from that. Well, I don't, because I ask myself, well, if the climate system can change so abruptly in just such a short period of time, 
then do we really want to be injecting a pulse of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere that is unprecedented on a geological timescale, let alone on a human timescale? We also know from the more recent past that climate phenomena can impose huge damages on human societies, not just in poor countries. To give just two examples, last year's drought in Australia hit agriculture so badly that one-third was knocked off GDP growth. And, of course, we know that the bill for Hurricane Katrina was 1% or 2% of total US GDP, which is quite remarkable if you consider it to be an event that lasted two or three days and affected two or three American states. Consequently, the suitability of one's approach to climate change as a policy issue really depends on whether it takes seriously the essential features of climate change. And I'm going to argue that they are twofold. First, it must take very seriously the idea that we are uncertain about the future and the risks are high. And secondly, it must take seriously the issue of ethics because it is certainly true that we are doing things for future generations here. And one of the strengths of of Professor Lombog's approach is at least we we understand quite clearly, and this is is not a message that green groups are are very often uh, confessed to, that Emission reductions today will not do much good for at least a few decades. But basically the bottom line of my short uh, speech tonight is that Coolit and Professor Lombog's approach does neither of these two things risk and ethics very well. Now I'll first turn to risk. And there are so many ways in which I I could present this issue to you because we've been bombarded with numbers and facts tonight. But I will do it in the most general way. This slide comes from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's fourth assessment report this year. And now it's full of detail. Please don't be dazzled. What it shows you is various estimates of the increase in global average temperature in 2100 relative to today. Temperature is on the vertical axis and on the horizontal axis the IPCC's standard emission scenarios. Now they've got wonderfully esoteric names like B1 and A1FI. Don't worry about that. Suffice it to say that emissions are low on the left-hand side and high on the right-hand side. There are lots of dots, triangles, circles and squares uh, on the diagram. They are individual estimates from individual models. I don't want you to focus on those. There are lots of thin uh, vertical lines. They are ranges from individual models. I don't want you to focus on those either. What I want you to focus on are the grey blocks and the horizontal black lines. They are respectively the range of uncertainty and the average estimate from what's known as the ensemble of IPCC estimates, so sort of grand estimate of how much we know about climate change. Well, let's look at this. Let's look at the best case and the worst case. So here's the best case down here, a one degree centigrade increase in global average temperature over a century. Now, This wouldn't be without its consequences, of course. There would already be consequences for indigenous Arctic communities, coral reefs, and so on. But this seems like a manageable change. And indeed, as Professor Lomborg has pointed out, there will be benefits. So in this country, we like to think quite often about the ability to grow fine wines in the south of England or take a Mediterranean-style beach holiday in Blackpool. So one degree centigrade does not look like an appalling prospect. But let's look at the worst case. That is a vertiginous 6.5 degree centigrade increase in global mean temperature in just a century. Now, this is a simple statement of fact. This is comfortably more 
than the change in global average temperature between today and the middle of the last ice age, when, without wishing to sound like Al Gore, Northern Europe, North America, Russia was under hundreds of metres of ice. We should be very wary of inducing changes like this. And remember, we do not have a thermostat with which we can turn climate change off at one degree or whatever the optimal temperature turns out to be. At six and a half degrees centigrade warming, we know from the scientific evidence about those climate changes that we can at least reasonably foresee that it will be all bad. Global decreases in crop productivity, for example, reducing our ability to feed a growing world population. We are also significantly increasing our risk of crossing key thresholds, increasing the possibility that, for example, the Greenland and West Antarctic ice sheets will collapse. They're well known. The uh, shutdown of the North Atlantic circulation is also something that's been popularly portrayed in the media. Less well known include a sudden flip or change in the monsoon regime or the El Nino Southern Oscillation, leading to fundamental changes in the pattern of rainfall and flooding over much of the equatorial world. It is not clear how we can adapt to these changes. Even if we could, adaptation is likely to be highly costly. If in no small part for the fact that if climate changes this rapidly and it's the change that is important for adaptation, then it will be increasing or changing more quickly than the rate at which we turn over our buildings and infrastructure. And that's when adapting to climate change starts to become really expensive. So why is Professor Lombog's account so very different to mine? Why am I so gloomy about this? Well, you may say it's because I'm Scottish and therefore of a rather <laughs> um, gloomy disposition in general. Well, it's not. It's because we treat the risks so very differently. And here's why. Basically, the whole of Professor Lombog's book rests on the assumption that we will see about two and a half degrees centigrade of climate change over the century. All of the statements about the amount of sea level rise we will see, the amount of heat and cold deaths, all rests on the assumption that it's going to be this mild. It may be, but the unfortunate vulnerability of his approach is that it depends on this being true. My approach, the Stern Review's approach, those who want to take strong action, does not depend on that being true. could be that. It could be very bad. We look at the whole distribution, and it is these big risks that we are worried about. I can give other examples, too, and since we talked about the Stern Review, I think I should. So let's take the economic cost of a tonne of carbon dioxide emitted today. This is an important metric in economics, because under actually quite a restrictive set of assumptions, it might give us some idea of what the carbon tax rate should be, how much we should be charging greenhouse gas emissions today. We are confidently told that... It, it will be $2 per tonne of carbon dioxide, or about $8 per tonne of carbon. And that is, another, uh, that is a number that comes out of a study, a comprehensive meta-study by Professor Richard Tall. But what Professor Lombog declines to mention is that the range of uncertainty in the study to which Professor Tall contributed is from $0 a tonne of carbon to over $1,000 a tonne of carbon. Then we're told, well, these high estimates are not peer-reviewed, but Professor Toll himself has published papers showing that the, that the social cost of carbon could be anything from minus $3 a tonne of carbon to $2,400 a tonne of carbon. Now, I sincerely hope that it isn't. But you can see the way in which the risks and the uncertainty have been squashed. Now, of course, risk cuts both ways. And if 
there was a chance that the cost of emission reductions was going to be astronomical like this, then it would be a more difficult trade-off to make. But there is no evidence for that. While estimates of the economic cost of climate change itself vary by three orders of magnitude, estimates of the economic cost of emission reductions vary by about one order of magnitude. Why is that? Well, it's basically because we already have a set of feasible techniques and technologies with which we can stabilize the climate system, and we know how much they cost today. Presumably in the future they'll be even cheaper, but we know how much they cost today. Take energy efficiency and avoided deforestation, for example. They come at low cost, if not no cost at all. Now certainly, new energy supply technologies like solar and wind are more expensive than high emission incumbents, but not astronomically so. That means we can estimate the cost of emission reductions with much more confidence. The second part of the story revolves around ethics, and it's one that's largely implicit in Professor Lombog's account. We are talking about risks that fall largely in the future, and it is true that emission reductions today are not going to buy us much in the way of a benefit for at least a few decades. So if you don't care about the future, you won't care about climate change. It is as simple as that. But of course, economists in particular have come up with a number of reasons. I should say that I am an economist, or at least would count myself in that group. Economists have come up with a number of reasons why we should value future people less than current people. And usually the story begins with the following claim. Don't invest in climate change. You'll get a better bang for your buck, if you like, elsewhere. And the corollary of this is, if you're looking at the, the benefits of climate policies today, you should discount them, and remember that word, discount them, at the rate of investment or the rate of return you can get on other things. Otherwise, you won't be maximizing the bang for your buck across all the different things you could invest in. Well, this argument is not very convincing. <laughs> Do we actually know what the market rate of return on an investment will be over 200 years? We have no markets that run for 200 years. Moreover, if climate change really does follow the worst-case scenario, then long-run economic growth will be rather low. It may even go negative. Low economic growth means low rates of return. I mean, there's another way of saying this, of course, and it is that investing in all the other things, like malaria prevention, HIV prevention, and so on, does not guarantee that we will be adequately equipped to combat climate change in the future. And anyway, market data are contradictory. Actually, the most relevant rates of return to look at in the market are those on very long-run government bonds, and they are really low, suggesting that we actually do place quite a lot of ethical weight on the future. But in any case, markets are not perfect, and they are not an indicator of social value, as any of you who have done microeconomics 101 or whatever will know. And herein lies an incredible irony, because we're evaluating... And an externality like climate change with a rate of return that takes no account of climate change. If ever the decks were stacked against climate change, it would be now. More fundamentally, should we let investment decisions by private individuals over their own lifetimes, over their own income streams, dictate social choices on climate change over many generations? There is no substitute for having an explicit discussion of the ethics. Remember, Economics started out as a branch of applied ethics. Adam Smith was a moral philosopher. 
Now, this is not to say that future people should re receive just the same weight as current people. We may want to take account of the fact that they will be richer, and presuming they are richer, then extra money to them will be worth less than it is to us now. But that would not lead us to discount the future very much. All of this highlights the weaknesses with the Copenhagen Consensus approach. Climate change is not an investment opportunity. It is a market failure, and market failures should be corrected. Why wouldn't one correct a market failure? Furthermore, emission reductions are not paid for out of the government budget. They're paid for across the whole economy. And carbon taxes and tradable carbon permits, if you sell them, raise money that can be spent on other things. Climate change is not a small development project, like spending a little bit of money on anti-malarial drugs. First of all, its impacts are felt worldwide. Now, in the Copenhagen Consensus, the logic for Professor Lomborg taking $50 billion as a sort of total amount of, of money that the world has got to do good things is that it's roughly about the amount of money that rich countries spend on overseas aid to poor countries. But in climate change, rich countries are spending for their own benefit, so presumably we have a bigger pot from which to draw. And remember that people in rich countries actually do seem to value the environment quite a lot. To this, Professor Lomborg would no doubt say, ah, well, they're just all listening to Al Gore. But the problem with this is that Professor Lomborg's whole approach is based on the sovereignty of consumer preferences. So if he argues that we shouldn't listen to the preferences of people living in rich countries, then he's pretty much nailing the coffin into his whole approach. Climate change is a big enough risk, not necessarily guaranteed, but a big enough risk to wipe out the gains from all other investment projects. And in any case, it's a very long-term investment. What do we actually learn when we put it up against a short-term investment that will pay back over a decade? Obviously, seen in that narrow way, we are not going to make the investment. But even if we put all of these to the side and we do accept that we have a budget constraint on promoting human welfare, then we must realize that governments routinely spend approximately none of their money on any of the things in the Copenhagen Consensus. So while the cost of the, meeting the UN's Millennium Development Goals is put at about, say, 75 to $120 billion, world governments spend more than a trillion dollars in the military. Of course, you could then take an extremely realist approach and say, well, that's the way of the world, but this seems to then lead to the unfortunate argument that future policies should be as bad, parochial and myopic as past policies, which again doesn't seem to be quite in the, the spirit of the consensus. But even if we put that to one side, then you can see from the variation in the social cost of carbon that I presented to you earlier that climate change could be pretty much anywhere on the list of policies that we see. I mean, if the social cost of carbon really is $2,400 per tonne, and I think that that's highly unlikely, but nevertheless not ruled out apparently, then an investment in climate policy today would pay back much more than any of the other things. So that shows the weaknesses of the approach. None of this is to say that I'm against adapting to climate change. The point is that we need to do much more adaptation and much more mitigation. If you think about it in economic terms, we are far away from the margin where we should be thinking about doing a little less adaptation and a little more mitigation. We need to do a lot more of both. So I will leave you with a, a quote from The Economist shortly after the Stern Review published last year. 
I couldn't sum up the situation any better myself. Thank you very much. Thank you both very much indeed. Very spirited talks. Um, a couple of very pointed questions to you, Bjorn, from my colleague Simon. I think it would be sensible in the interests of uh, our evening if you perhaps took two or three minutes, if you wish, to respond to the main points that were made, and then we'll go to open questions. Yes. Um, I, I would say in general, um, uh, uh, you were pre presenting some, uh, some valid points. I would also say, though, uh, your, your presentation, for instance, and the fact that it uh, all relies on the, on the fact that it's 2.6 degrees centigrade. No, uh, what, we've, what we've seen and, uh, with, uh, with most of the cost-benefit, uh, even if you accept that there are huge risks involved, it simply changes linearly, of course, if it gets worse. We should do somewhat more, but not very much more. And likewise, if it goes down the other way, it should, we should actually do likewise less. And that's why I'm focusing on the main, uh, on, on the main and central scenario. But it is not in any way uh, 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 dependent. The, the, the major outcome is not dependent on that it should be 2.6 or indeed anywhere close to that. Uh, I would also take issue to the idea of saying that I didn't actually say the, uh, um, uh, the, the range. I did say $2, and I actually said that the 90 percentile is $14. So you have to say it's a very, very unlikely event that we're going to be above $14, which is still below the cost. Uh, and again, the idea here is, of course, to say, what should we do? Of course, we're, we're entirely likely to have all our, our uh, pet worries about what, we, what might happen. And I, I absolutely grant you that terrible things can happen. Of course, this is true with everything, especially if we project uh, any uh, policy out in, into 100 years. We can make very worst-case scenarios out of everything, throwing a little nuclear weapons and some bioterrorism, and you're good to go with pretty much any social, uh, 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 social implication you want. Just to give you one example uh, would be to say if we don't do something out about sub-Saharan Africa, uh, uh, HIV AIDS, we could have failed states, most of, of sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, we could have basically a terrorist nest the size of sub-Saharan Africa, and that does not bode well for world security in any reasonable way. Now, I'm not saying that this is even a, a, a remotely plausible scenario, but I'm certainly saying it's one of those things you can throw in there. Now, I'm all happy to say that we could go along the way of talking about what is worst-case analysis, but clearly that doesn't give us very much to go on because at the end of the day, it just simply means that we should be doing all things at full out, and clearly we're not. Um, the second part is the, uh, uh, it, it, it strikes me as an odd way of saying that uh, uh, it's a market failure. Yes, it's a $2 market failure, but the main problem of climate change, as is the main problem of many of the other things like uh, HIV AIDS, is, is, is actually lack of public funds. Now, you say that this doesn't come out of the public spending, but of course it comes out of the public purse at the end of the day because you and I end up paying, uh, for instance, for climate policies just as we would pay, for instance, for interventions on, on HIV AIDS or other things. And so at the end of the day, it seems reasonable to me to have a conversation about if we're going to spend another billion dollars, how should we spend it? Now you say, but these are, this is uh, a narrow way to, uh, to cast the discussion. It seems to me actually it's a very, very inclusive way, and it really is the way that you would like us to have a conversation, namely, what is ethical? How should we be spending extra money? Should we be spending the next billion dollars doing very much good or a little good? 
Now, we can have a conversation about it. You then say, no, no, I want to spend $50 billion. And I say, shouldn't we still spend it well? Then you'll say, but then we should be $100 billion. Well, shouldn't we still spend it well? The point, of course, remains that there's still a lot of other projects where we could do a lot more good. And uh, uh, throwing in the military spending is, is often a very interesting, uh, but of course I would doubt that most countries would see their military spending as trying to do good for the world. Maybe the U.S., but most other countries certainly uh, <laughs> wouldn't actually think of, of military spending as a way of doing good. It's clearly a way of extending uh, uh, national, uh, national interest, and as such it's no different from the way that we invest in <laughs> hospitals here in, in the U.K. where we easily spend a billion, sorry, no, a million pounds in saving one human life, whereas obviously that could save perhaps a county in, uh, in, in Sudan. But that's not how we are. We actually do care a lot about our own nation, but to the extent that we care about the rest of the world, I think we should still should have uh, a discussion about how we spend that money best. So I'm all happy about saying, yes, this is a discussion also about risk. It's a discussion also about ethics. But at the end of the day, what kind of world do we want to leave? Uh, leave? Do we want? And that was the curious thing that I thought was absent. All right, you can't do everything in 13 minutes. But still, the uh, curiously absent talking about what should we do? Should we do the Kyoto Protocol or more like the Kyoto Protocol, essentially spending lots of money doing very little good 100 years from now? Or should we perhaps do an enormous amount of good and also think smartly about how we deal with the problem in the long term? Thanks. Right. Thanks, Bjorn. Now, we're going to open up. Before we do so, if there's anybody who wants to leave before we start that, would you like to do that now? And then whilst those people are going, can I say that the rules are the usual ones? Please state clearly who you are. Ask a question as succinctly as you can. There are microphones around. But the first thing you have to do is to catch my eye, and I'll try and make sure that I've seen you. You'll be the first then, sir, over here. Just wait until the people are gone. gentleman here first, and then the next, the next question is the gentleman with the beard, the white shirt at the back. <coughs> Hello. Um, my name is Chris Bowman. As we're at the LSE, I thought I would ask some questions about the economics. Um, the only economists that Bjorn Lomberg has quoted today are Richard Tull and Gary Yore. Both of those economists have written specifically about the need for vigorous action. Toll, as you certainly know, is working with Martin Weitzman, and Martin Weitzman is adopting the approach that uh, is on the board from The Economist, and the most important papers which the students here will do next year will be the two key papers that Martin Weitzman has written as a critique of Stern. It's a critique of Stern which says, as you know, Stern was right for the wrong reasons. So I'd ask you to comment on the Weitzman critique and do you think Stern was right for the wrong reasons, or do you not respect Weizmann or Toll in that? 
And secondly, Gary Yohe, who I think is the economist you've chosen as your climate change economist in the book you're publishing with CUP in a few days' time. Gary Yohe, the other one you mentioned, has been adamant, as you know, about the need for vigorous action, about the significance of the 2007 IPCC report in terms of uh, impacts on the third world and developing countries, and is coming out with a totally different message from you. So the question is, are there any serious economists, the ones you quote or the ones you don't quote, who would take any of this economics seriously at all? Thank you. Do you want to do that straight away? Uh, I'm sorry, I've, I've only briefly uh, uh, seen the, the Weissman uh, uh, paper, so I can't really comment on that. But I'd like to comment on the other two, uh, because obviously I know both Tal and Yoe. Uh, and I think what we're basically asking at the Copenhagen Consensus is not whether this is not a serious problem. Of course it is. And of course anyone would argue that you should be doing something about this. Now, the question is, what should you do about it, and at what time frame? But also, and I think this is the crucial point of the Copenhagen consensus, and this is the conversation that we don't have when we only focus about climate change, is to realize that money that we spend on one thing is money that we can't spend on some of these other things. So at the end of the day, it really is a discussion about how much should we be worried about one issue compared to another. I'm not at all surprised, and I, 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 I assume you would also agree, if I asked a malaria economist, should we do something about malaria? He or she would say, absolutely, and we should do an enormous more, amount more than what we're doing. And likewise with HIV AIDS or clean drinking water or sanitation or electricity or, uh, uh, or all the other issues in the world. So at the end of the day, this is really a question of saying, where do you get the most bang for the buck? Now, the discussion goes, and that, that goes back to the discount rate of what do you, what do you uh, uh, see as a reasonable discount rate. Uh, at the economists at the, uh, at the Copenhagen consensus uh, adopted a discount rate that's some, probably somewhere between 3 and 5%. Uh, and th but what they all said was it has to be a, uh, a, a um, sorry, what do you say? Uh, 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 it has to be the same across, there's a fancy word for that, across all, all, uh, all areas. It has to be consistent, sorry. Uh, it has to be a consistent uh, 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 discount rate across all these different areas. And the point here is to say, of course, if you choose a much lower discount rate, you should do so explicitly also in all the other areas like HIV, AIDS, and malnutrition and malaria. And of course, there you would also see, and that also feeds into the whole discussion we had uh, uh, about the ethical uh, part, that right now uh, the economists say perhaps we have a, a, a feedback, a, a payback of, uh, of every dollar spent on HIV AIDS of about $40. But of course, if you up the, uh, the discount rate, and you therefore have a situation where you will, and we know this for malaria, for instance, you will have countries that are twice as rich by the end of the century. That will have a huge impact if you have a very low discount rate. So maybe you will be able to push uh, uh, climate change, like the Kyoto Protocol and other approaches, up <laughs> above $1 per dollar spent. But likewise, you would also see some of the other approaches skyrocket up to hundreds uh, uh, of, of dollars as a payback. And that's why I still think it's incredibly important to have this conversation about where do we actually spend our money. You ask me then, I, I presume somewhat rhetorical, who would then support my argument? Well, that was where we were fortunate to have the uh, eight economists from the Copenhagen Consensus, including four Nobel laureates, actually pointing out that it is an important discussion to have and that, yes, they would prioritize that money differently. Good, thank you. No, he did not. He was asked a question in The Economist 
of whether he thought that this was a useful process, and he did indeed think it is a useful process. He's coming back in 2008. But he also said that he thought that we should be thinking about climate change more in the sense that we need to find other alternatives, and I absolutely agree with him because we do need to have better approaches. They were basically only offered, and that's one of the things we're working with Tal and Yoey, and we've also invited Stern, actually, to come up with smarter alternatives because basically they were offered a batch of poor policies. Now, I would very much like to see smarter policies, and that, of course, is one of the points of the Copenhagen Consensus that you actually, Charles Krauthammer from the Washington Post calls this a thought Olympics. In a sense, you would hope that the people who end up at the very bottom of the list would come up with better competitors for the next round of Olympics, that you actually come up with smarter solutions. I would definitely love to see that, and that's where we need to go if we're also going to actually fix climate change. I want to try and get moving on, but Simon wants just to come in particularly on this. But just in relation to, to the, uh, the, the uh, uh, story by Martin Weitzman, the idea that Stern was, was right, in fact, for the wrong reason. Well, well first of all, I think it's uh, rather misleading and, and, frankly, fairly patronizing to suggest that uh, economists like Martin Weitzman, Ken Arrow, Amartya Sen, and Joseph Stiglitz uh, never thought about anything else other than climate change, and that's the reason why they uh, decided that we should take strong action. On the contrary, and indeed, Nicholas Stern was a development economist before he became, in the latter part of his career, an environmental economist. So really, in terms of personalities, and personalities are often trotted out on both sides of this argument, uh, that really should tell you something. But on the point of Stern Review being right for the wrong reasons, of course, I think we were right for the right reasons. Uh, Martin's story is that uh, we got the risk uh, nearly right. The risks are even higher than those in the Stern Review, but we got the ethics wrong. Um, well, I would say to him, you have to push the, the risks very, very, very high uh, before the ethics stop mattering. But on the whole, uh, we're singing off a similar sheet. Thanks very much. Gentlemen at the back there, please. Uh, hello. Give uh, your name and then question. Yeah, I, I, I'm Jeff Beacon. Um, I'm spending the vastly increased value of my house going around uh, fi finding out what's happening. I've met a lot of government ministers and players in um, the climate change um, game at the moment. And I'm quite shocked at the level of information, both public and private. And I'm even worried about the IPCC. Uh, it seems they haven't got Siberian methane in their feedbacks. Could, could we um, turn this into a question, please? Uh, yes. I, uh, it's, it seems they haven't got Siberian methane in their feedbacks. They're low on soil carbon. They're below um, par on um, sea ice. And... Isn't the situation really quite a lot worse, given we've got feedbacks on feedbacks, than we're being told? I've even got an email from some leading researcher that says, we can't really tell the, the, the truth because we'd be hammered by the skeptics. But um, we hope the policymakers will th see through this scam. And this policymaker here certainly wouldn't. Right, thanks. So the, the question just... The question is, is are, are we up to speed on anything on this? Are we just miles behind the game. You're, but you're particularly wondering if IPCC if has IPCC, underestimated. IPCC uh, is up to date. Is up to date. Right. Do you want to comment on that? Uh, well, I mean, again, we have, we have this curious situation that uh, for many, many years, uh, everybody said the UN Climate Panel was the gold standard for virtually everything we were talking about. And a lot of uh, uh, skeptics were, I think, quite rightly, uh, hammered on the fact that we weren't, uh, 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 that they weren't using the, the correct uh, version of, of what we did know. Uh, but on the other hand, it seems uh, that now the UN Climate Panel is just simply not scary enough. 
Uh, and I'm not quite sure whether that's a useful way uh, to, uh, to, to make policy. Actually, just to give you a specific uh, point on, on the Siberia, of course, we've had lots of these kinds of considerations uh, of, the, uh, of the time. We worried about the El Nino. We worried about the Gulf Stream stuffing. Those don't seem to, to hold up. Uh, the Siberia uh, methane feedback uh, uh, has both from uh, Canadian studies and from uh, Greenland studies uh, seem to indicate that they're actually wrong. What happens is that we're also seeing a dramatic growth back of, of biomass that actually counterweighs it to the factor of five to one or thereabouts. Uh, so again, I'm not saying that just because we found that one worry might not be true, that there not, might not be another one out there, but I would severely suggest that we should certainly base our decisions on the best available science and not just on the one that seems uh, the most uh, you know, sort of scary at the time. Perhaps I could take the Chairman's prerogative, since I did act as consultant to the Hadley Center for Climate Research for some time, uh, just to make a brief comment, which is that the IPCC is a process that has tried to include a very, very wide cross-section, but it is true that there have been problems that have come from overheating, uh, perhaps the most overheating of the science, uh, the most well-known... <laughs> The most well-known is actually one of the topics that our lecturer chose, which is over tornado and hurricane research, where the world's leading author, Chris Lancy, actually resigned from IPCC because he felt that the science was being misrepresented but in an overheated direction in the sense that there isn't, in his view, uh, a coherent climate signal to be seen in the uh, Atlantic pattern of, of hurricanes, but this was what was being asserted. So you're right that there are difficulties. And I think everybody's actually quite aware of this as we've gone into the fourth process, um, and it cuts, therefore, both ways. So you're the next. Okay. Um, I'm Scott. I'm a uh, graduate student at the LSE. Please speak directly into the microphone. Okay. <laughs> there we go. Um, I, I just basically want to ask a, a, quite a simple question. Um, and that is that if we take Calcutta or, yeah, let's take Calcutta and we say there's going to be a, a foot of uh, sea rise, we know that that's going to have uh, certain effects as things are now in Calcutta. Um, and we have a certain amount of money to invest. Um, the basic contention is that investing that in carbon reduction is more expensive than investing it in, in certain other poverty reduction measures or increasing the quality of life in, in Calcutta or, or whatever it is. If we simplify that down to that level, then I want to understand what your argument is, Dr. Dietz, because really it's not about all of the other stuff and, and about the economics for me. Uh, economics for me. It's about Calcutta and you know how those people are going to be doing. Uh, in 10 years, if that same amount of money spent directly on the people of that city, on other, me other measures other than reducing uh, carbon emissions, would, uh, um, would, would put them in a better state, surely we have to go with that. And if we're not going to go with that, then it says something, I think, very strange about the psychology that goes behind the whole green movement, the, the leftover of hippiedom, you know, the, the romantic notion of big industry polluting the world and how, what a naughty thing <coughs> that is. And I'm very shocked to see so many economists engaged in it. Would you like to respond that yeah, directly to you? Most certainly was directed to me, yes. Um, <laughs> well, I suppose you can boil my argument down to two points in relation to that specific example. Uh, the IPCC's uh, central estimate of uh, sea level rise over this uh, century is, is one foot. Uh, it, but it basically declines to give an upper bound because it doesn't know what's going to happen to the ice sheets. 
and scientists who have contributed to that same chapter of the IPCC reckon that it could be as much as three feet. Now, uh, investing in HIV, malaria, better urban infrastructure, that's not necessarily going to protect us from three feet of sea level rise. We're going to need to adapt to that by building defences, and defending three feet of sea level rise is going to be extremely expensive before we start mentioning all of the other effects that climate change could bring about. So this, this idea that uh, we're better we're off spending it on other things is, is, is such a, has such a, a poverty of a, a perspective on, on, on the risks that are involved, fails to look at the long term, fails to consider whether all the other things that we might do uh, over the next few decades are really going to guarantee when climate change does come along in a big way that uh, we're actually going to be able to deal with it. I mean, I'm sorry, because this really is the main issue. So I'm, I just have to ask you, isn't it true that if we invest in huge amounts of, of uh, prevention, not just in Calcutta, of course, this would have to be spread over all these cities, uh, but invest in, in dealing with clean drinking water, lack of uh, sanitation, uh, the HIV, AIDS, malaria, it seems reasonable to assume that we'll see at least a couple of percentage points more of growth per capita per year. That's certainly if, if the malaria uh, uh, understanding is any, anything to go by. So we're basically talking about making these countries twice as rich as they would otherwise be in 30 years. Yet you say that whatever we do, it'll actually matter very little in 30 years. So, I mean, my question really is to say, do we want to have done nothing at all in 30 years, or do we want to make them twice or thrice as rich? And wouldn't that make them much better able to deal with whatever they have to deal with? Do you want yeah. to come back? Yes, I think absolutely. we should just go on with this point. From well, the, I mean, <laughs> absolutely. But the whole thrust of my argument is that we should do both, and I don't think there's any reason why we cannot do both. I've completely rejected the idea. completely rejected the idea of the spurious $50 billion budget constraint on, on, on things that the world could do to improve its own welfare. That seems to me to be a, a failure of the imagination. Um, but uh, in addition to that, yes, absolutely, I agree that uh, investments in, 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 uh, in other improvements in, in human development of, of people on the uh, west coast of India will improve their capacity to adapt to climate change. But I am rather wary of whether that is going to be enough to adapt to the big changes that will come about an adaptation to very rapid change. I really don't think that we should be confident that it will be cheap and easy. You see, at the heart of this is a, is a very asymmetric treatment of the cost and easiness of emission reductions versus the cost and easiness of adaptation to climate change. People like Professor Longborg will sell you the argument that adaptation is extremely cheap and extremely easy, but mitigation is extremely difficult and extremely expensive. Well, I ask, why do we have any reason to suppose that if we do mitigation well, we'll be seeing a slow and predictable ratcheting up of the policy regime, an increase in the price of carbon and so on. on in reality, what we, we will be adapting to are uncertain and very variable climate phenomena. It's not clear to me that it's going to be any easier to adapt to climate change than it will be to adapt to, to a climate change policy. I mean, I love the fact that you say both, because, of course, that totally sidestep. It's a little bit like sitting in family and saying, what should we do? Should we go on a vacation or get a new car? Oh, let's do both. I mean, we know that that just doesn't work. I mean, you, and, and, and you talk about failure of imagination. But, of course, I, and I understand the, in, the intuition. I mean, it was also quite clear a, a fair number of people were applauding, because obviously we should do both. But let's just look at what we've done for the last 50 years. We've done neither. 
it doesn't seem likely that we're suddenly going to do both, or at least shouldn't we have a conversation about which should we do first? Uh, I was at, when I was at the U.S. Congress, this this congressman was uh, was saying, I'll, I'll refrain to say which party he was from, but he said, you know, in a somewhat patronizing sense, he said, Mr. Lombard, I understand why you talk about prioritization because Denmark is a small country, <laughs> <laughs> but in the U.S. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, where have you been the last 50 years? It's not like you solved all the world's problems. It, we, we can't do both. And so we have to come back and say, if we manage to get $25 billion on the table, shouldn't we have a conversation about how we spend them best? If we manage to get $50 billion, it's not a big surprise that if all we do, and notice, we're here to talk about climate change. We don't talk about all these other things. Everybody says when I bring it up, oh, yeah, we should do all the other things. But back to climate. Uh, and, and that's <laughs> obvious that then we, we spend most of our effort, we worry most about these things. Now, you say that adaptation might be cheap. Well, we actually do know that it's cheap, for instance, for sea level rise, because we've done this. Now, mitigation might also be cheaper, but I would also suggest to you, at least if we look at the current pattern, it is only true, and the, the suggestions of both uh, uh, the Stern Report and many others come out with, is that politicians do the very, very, very best they possibly can. Now, most of us know that that's not the way politicians usually pick. Right? I mean, take a look at the uh, renewables option, which is about, what, 10 times as expensive as the regular Kyoto Protocol of, of, uh, obligations that you would have in, in the UK. We have a lot of bad policy in, in, involved in this. And so I would say, still, we need to have that conversation about saying, we can't just say both and sort of blindly uh, uh, assume the problem away. What should it be? Where should we spend the first billion? And I think, you know, that, that question still remains. So should we help Calcutta a little through climate change or a little through helping them with a lot of the other problems that they have first? Thank you for a very productive question. <laughs> now, <laughs> got a lot of people wanting the floor. Let's try and get on the next gentleman here, and then it's followed by you, sir, if you'd like to give him the microphone. Richard Stevens. Thank you, Professor Lombard, for a very stimulating and thought-provoking presentation. Uh, it may be that the kind of measures, that you're, the strategies you're suggesting, may alleviate the consequences of uh, global warming in, in a cost-productive way. But your time scale is 50 to 100 years. Now, that may seem a long time, but in terms of human history, that's quite a short time scale. And climate change is not going to go away. And so you may have strategies for mitigation during that period, but what about the more distant future? Will they work for them? Uh, uh, well, the, the short answer is if, if we do get solar panels, and again, that's just a metaphor, but if we get solar panels that are cheaper than fossil fuels, we won't have a global warming problem after that. We'll have, as, as, uh, as I'm sure you'll also point out, we'll have still lingering global warming, and that is still going to be a problem. So I'm not suggesting, and I think we should be very honest about this, we're not going to solve all climate change. Of course, virtually none of the proposals, at least uh, the reasonable proposals that we have, are going to do so. But it is a question of saying, yes, in the long term, we will be uh, much better off. I'm not going to pretend to say that I know what's going to happen in a 1,000 years and how we, we should address it. On the other hand, I'm not quite sure the Vikings could have had any reasonable input on how we should deal with problems in 2007, except perhaps saying we should make sure that they get richer rather than poorer. Thank you very much. You, sir. Followed by the gentleman, the bald gentleman at the back. <laughs> My name is Francesco Grillo. I'm a PhD student here. I'm also an economist, so I'm too miserable to uh, be capable to have an ethical approach to climate change. 
However, I still have, as an economist, uh, many skepticism on the skeptical approach of Professor Lundborg on climate change. Uh, two questions slash uh, issues. Number one, how do you calculate cost? Because uh, uh, it seems to me that if we have uh, a firm that is uh, spending something on uh, uh, cutting emission of CO2, there is another firm who is selling technologies to that firm most of the times that is having the cost of the firm A on its revenues. So the, the entire matrix of the cost seems rather... Uh, uh, strange to me. Also, you cannot compare 25, mi uh, to 25 billion uh, US dollars on a, a develop development project with the cost that we are uh, considering when uh, we talk about preventing climate change. Second, very small question. Let's say that climate change is not real, that it's fake. But let's assume that, that this unreal problem serves the purpose to address with its popularity a very real and immediate problem, which is uh, the fact that 195 states buy their energy from five states, of which the most democratic one uh, happens to be Russia. Uh, don't you think that we can also accept to have uh, a fake problem to address a very real and very immediate problem, which, by the way, does not appear in the very uh, priority of uh, the Copenhagen Consensus List, which is diversification of energy. Not, not just yet. just want to get you the microphone. Fine. We're going to take a couple of questions now. So the gentleman at the back, please. Good evening. Uh, my name is Hagai and I'm a student here. Uh, I, will, I will start my uh, Master Science in Environmental Policy and Regulation soon. My question is uh, for uh, Professor Lomborg. Uh, I, I kind of agree with you that uh, climate change is not the problem because I, I might offer uh, another perspective which might be wider. I think that climate change is not uh, a problem. It's a symptom. And the problem is much wider. The problem is that uh, we put too much uh, ecological um, um, pressure on the planet, and the pan planet cannot support us anymore. And we, you, we, we can see that by uh, other indicators like ecological footprint and ISCW and, and, and many more. And, and so climate change is just one symptom. Other symptoms are what happened with the fish in the oceans, what happened with the trees and forests all around the globe, what happened with fresh water and, aquifer and aquifers. Now, if we won't address this a wider problem and just uh, address those symptoms, you and your friends in, in uh, Denmark might have longer list to uh, set your priorities to. Um, and another one is short one is um, you were talking about the richer, uh, the person from Bang Bangladesh that in 100 years will be much richer. Uh, after studying these assessments and the IPCC uh, quite carefully, if you will offer me to give up my life now and you will give me my life back in 100 years, I will not take your offer. Okay, thanks very much. Will you? Well, I can, I can safely say I can't make that offer, so. Uh, but, but, I, but I would say that's, that's actually very, uh, that's very symptomatic that we tend to believe. Uh, I was at a BBC conference where they asked, 
most of the BBC journalists, are you better off than your parents or grandparents? They said, absolutely, yes. Almost all hands shut up. Are your kids and grandkids going to be better off? Surprisingly few hands went up. Of course, they're also very successful, so you know, you'd imagine there's some uh, you know, self-selection. But basically, what it does, <laughs> does indicate, of course, is it actually tells us that there's a problem in our perception because even the worst, the most pessimistic UN climate panel scenario estimate that the average person in the developing world will be about as, be as well off as we are today. So, yeah, at least we need to say then there's something dramatically wrong about our imagination about the future. Uh, you talk about a lot of other things. You talk uh, th that it's a symptom of ecological damage. So that's, of course, what I wrote my book in 2001 about. I'll just leave you with these kind of thoughts, you know, talk about an ecological footprint. Well, I, we've done a paper in that if we actually, uh, if you do it correct, the ecological footprint is actually declining, not increasing. Uh, if you look at forests, uh, the UN Climate Panel, by, its, uh, uh, by most of its scenarios, actually estimate that we're going to have more forests by the end of the century. And of course, it's incredibly important to realize that with global warming, because it also acts as, uh, as uh, 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 CO2 also acts as fertilizer, we're going to have much more biomass, or if you will, much more life, about 50% more life by the end of the century. Now, we might disagree on whether we like that life, whether we think it's pretty or not, but it's certainly going to be more life, and I would suggest that all other things equal. That's actually kind of a positive. I'm not saying that's the only thing we should go for, but at least we need, again, to have a sense of proportion. So I would say, no, it's not so much a, a symptom of ecological damage, but it is a question of management, as I, I think we've, we've uh, discussed it here today. Uh, your question, um, you talk about the cost, but, but listen, the cost, you know, it's, it's the income of another, uh, of another company. To, to show you why that's a fallacious argument, uh, uh, if, if we dig a lot of holes and, and fill them up again, we could actually encourage a whole new industry doing that. We could you know, get use all our, our GDP on doing that. We could have lots of different companies competing on how quickly and how well they could uh, dig up the holes and cover them, maybe so we couldn't even see them, so we could do the same place again. Uh, but the problem is, of course, it's not actually something of value. And that's the problem. If you get energy first from fossil fuels and you then get energy from somewhere else, the only value you get out of it is the avoided CO2. And that's why it actually has a cost if that's bigger. Now, you also have a benefit. You know, most things you buy actually both have costs and benefits, and those are the costs and the benefits. So they are real costs. Uh, it's, it's not just sort of a, f a figment of the imagination. Your other point is very interesting, and that's one that very many people say. Uh, I tend to uh, assume it when you say it may be even a fake problem, but it might solve a real problem. I, mean, I would tend to say this is really a, a energy se uh, security, that people will say, but at least if we get all renewable energy, hey, I mean, we won't have to rely on a lot of Middle Eastern states. Absolutely true, but you have to remember that until we get there, climate change and, and uh, energy security doesn't actually go parallel. Very often they intersect because obviously the best way to get uh, independence of energy is to go coal. But that's not what Europe has done in many ways because of the Kyoto Protocol. We've gone to gas and see where that's left us with Mr. Putin. Uh, so I would say that's exactly, I mean, that's, that's fine because it actually does do some good for climate change, but it does leave us at the hands of, of a slightly less uh, reliable source of, of, of energy. And those are the kinds of uh, problems. So I would say that those, those two are not obviously well aligned. Right, now, time is not our friend, I'm afraid, and I've got four people on the list, and what I propose to do is ask if we can take them in pairs. So it's you first, sir, followed by this lady down here. Um, yes, I think my question is partly... Just tell being... us who you are, please. Pardon? Tell us who you oh, are. Oh, so, sorry, Philip Cogram, uh, not an economist. I think my question is possibly going to be extremely naive, but it was partly covered by the gentleman in the white jacket earlier, but uh, I'll cut my question down. If you take Bjorn's approach and Simon's approach as being two different strands or two different programs, 
I think in the, the chapter on global warming in Bjorn's book, last book, the last sentence, I believe, says, we are wealthy enough to do both. So the first half of my question is, do you still believe that? If you do believe that, is there any sense in at least planning for, the, say, the medium term, the next 10 to 20 years, planning to take both approaches and committing some money without necessarily expending the money? Because as time goes on, there are uncertainties on both sides. And as we can see, both the science harden up on one side and the economies harden up on the other side, we can see which side is perhaps the right side in which to drift most of the money. I hope that question makes sense. Good. Thank you very much. It's very helpful. Would you like to give us your question, please? Yes. Um, my name is Stephanie. I'm a grad student here at LSE. I just wanted to sort of add another dimension to this conversation. We've talked about bang for your buck, but no one's really sort of addressed um, the sort of architecture of you know, the governing institutions that tackle this. So whose buck are we talking about? Is this local, state level, regional, or global? Since this problem is a global problem, I just wanted to know what each of you sort of thought about the architecture, the current architecture of the sort of global environmental system, and do you have any thoughts on how that might be improved, redesigned, status quo? Thanks very much. If you pass the microphone, the next person is that lady there, and then do you want to comment on these? Um, yes, very briefly. Um, uh, you're absolutely right. I, I wrote that we can do both, and we still can do both. We're certainly rich to solve all problems. I would love to live in that world where we fix everything. You know, there are 26 civil wars. We could do them. Okay, uh, but but does that cost anything? Uh, I'm sorry, planning. All right, yeah, sure, but you know, we're not talking billions. Uh, but maybe this is the, the the economist imagination failing. But if it doesn't cost a lot. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, uh, at the end of the day, it really is a question of saying, do we want to spend that money or commit to spending that money? Maybe I didn't understand your question, though. Am, am I being... I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, Maybe I don't understand your <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, but at least my, my point would be to say we can do all of it, but we don't. And so I still think, we, you know, at least in reasonable future, we should certainly be arguing for spending the money where it would do the most good. And that, of course, brings... Uh, point over to what kind of architecture. I think that's a very interesting discussion. No, we haven't discussed that at all. Uh, I think the only way to do this is to make sure that we have uh, at least very global adherence. It need not be perfect, but it needs to be near, near perfect. I would also argue that Simon needs it much more than I do, in a sense, because you know, if we just leave China out of it, they're just going to take over all our uh, carbon-intensive uh, production. Uh, whereas if, if, we, if we suggest, you know, let's do research and development, if China's not in there, I mean, big deal. Uh, it, it means we lose half a billion dollars of research and development, they, but hopefully they also feel that they lose the chance of actually contributing and getting some of the patents that might make them richer later. Uh, so at the end of the day, I, I would imagine the, the, uh, the incentive structure and in what I'm suggesting at least is easier to get a global buy-in on. Uh, I think you should have regional and you should possibly have uh, you know, national uh, regulation of how you're going to spend that money because we need a lot of different approaches and we also need a lot, and I'm not going into that at all, but we need X prizes, public-private partnerships, uh, uh, exchange of, uh, of sciences. We need a lot of processes so we assure ourselves that we don't have just have a lot of researchers running around and saying, cool, we got a lot of money, but actually also doing something that will lead to, uh, uh, to breakthroughs that are actually marketable in, in, in 20 or 40 years. 
Simon wants to come in on this quickly. Yes. So how should we hedge, given that we're uncertain about the future? What should we do? Should we wait and see, or should we go at it quite hard? Well, the atmospheric concentration of greenhouse gases is about 432, 433 parts per million. If we want to keep the chance of a 5 degree centigrade increase in global average temperature down to a minimum, we should probably be stabilising at no more than 550 parts per million. That means that we have to stop emissions increasing and start getting them on the downward slope within about 10 to 20 years, so we need to go hard at it. So what if we go hard at it and we get it wrong and climate change isn't a problem? Well, we have a, a bunch of perhaps moderately useful, perhaps moderately useless technologies, um, but the future doesn't look so bad. What happens if we wait and see and then we discover in 20 years' time that we've actually done nothing to push these technologies forward? And remember, it's market pool that brings technologies forward. You just can't spend half of 0.05% uh, of GDP and hope that they'll miraculously get to the market. We need a strong policy signal. So if we just wait and see, then we could well discover in 20 years' time that it was as bad as we thought it could be, but it's too late to do anything about it. I think that the, the, the correct strategy is quite clear to me. Right, we're going just to go on for another five minutes. We'll stop at quarter past. We have two other people. Can I ask you to make your questions as succinct as you can and the answers as succinct also? Hello, good evening. Um, my name is Andy. I'm a master's student at the LSE. I actually have a very simple question which is, relates to governance as well. Uh, Professor Lomborg, you said that you would like to see um, solar energy replacing fossil fuel burning uh, as a source of energy. Uh, but you also said that the Kyoto Protocol is a waste of money. So I'm wondering whether the Kyoto Protocol isn't a tool, a political tool to actually achieve what you would like to see. Thank you very much. Very clear question. And we'll take the last one, which is the lady up here, please. Uh, my name is Abigail Burridge. I'm from the Development Planning Unit at University College London. Um, and mine is also about governance. Um, I have a bit of an issue with the idea that you can throw money at a country and it will, you'll somehow solve their development problems. Um, I think what's been missing from the argument is, is to do with good governance at a local, national and global level. And what climate change is doing is getting um, global politics moving. We've had these development issues for a long time. A lot of countries have been experiencing poverty, a widening of the poverty gap, the idea that countries will be richer. We've seen temporary settlements. And I will stop because I could... Go on that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Right. Uh, no time for any more questions, I'm afraid. So, Bjorn. Yes, good. Uh, it's absolutely true that if we do the Kyoto Protocol, we'll probably get more solar panels, as Germany is, a, is an excellent uh, indicator. Sorry? Well, they will get somewhat cheaper, but of course, what they will not do is get you from 10 times as expensive. Uh, it's important to say, first, solar panels is only a metaphor. It could be very many different things. Right? But when we're talking about solar panels, it could get them from 10 to, I don't know, five times as expensive when we start mass producing them. But of course, the real point is you need to get them down to towards fossil, uh, 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 the cost of fossil fuels. And that's why I would argue, actually, uh, I would strongly disagree with Simon. Uh, he says that this is a market push that we need. Well, we don't have market push in, in the long-term uh, evolution, for instance, of pharmaceuticals. We have a lot of basic research. Yes, you have pharmaceuticals to push the industries when they're close to, uh, uh, to market. We should certainly have uh, windmill companies uh, uh, you know, making windmills. But it's not clear that we should have uh, a lot of state-funded, very, very inefficient windmills or very, very inefficient solar panels. And 
It's again absolutely true that we need to start, for instance, fossil fuel uh, subsidies. Uh, one of the main subsidies, of course, to energy companies has turned out to be the Kyoto Protocol, uh, we should remember, by distributing very generously, and we've seen this in all policy experiments, by distributing, uh, grandfathering the emission rates. Uh, but let's just remember again, the question is, how much? How do you actually get more technology? We haven't done that through the Kyoto Protocol or indeed any other. We've actually seen declining levels of research and development in both of, of both renewables and on energy uh, efficiency, the only two ones that are tracked by the uh, International Energy Agency uh, since the early 80s. And we've not seen a pickup in the Kyoto countries. So the point that I'm trying to make is if we actually want much cheaper solar panels, we need to make sure that we push for that technology through investments in research and development rather than just expecting that we're going to get a very, I mean, you would expect some increase uh, doing the Kyoto Protocol, but very, very inefficiently so. Uh, the other part uh, about good governance, oh, absolutely. I just don't know how you do that. Uh, and, and so, again, we should absolutely have better governments in Africa, uh, uh, but we can't do that. But what we can do is, for instance, make sure that they don't die from HIV or don't die from malaria. In some parts of those, you know, some places it's absolutely impossible, but many places we can do. And, again, it's not about getting condom rates to 100%, but it's about getting them from 30 to 50 uh, and, and again, it's about making sure that there's less malnutrition, more than half the world's population suffering from that. And certainly we can do something about our subsidies to first world agriculture. So again, there are things we can do, and those are the things we should do. Of course, likewise, as Simon would say, with climate change, we can't do everything. But it's a question about we should juggle the opportunities of the possible. But we really need to have that conversation about the possible things we can do. Should they be great investments or just slightly good ones? Well, ladies and gentlemen, we've come to the end of our time, and thank you very much indeed for an excellent debate, and thank you, our speakers. <laughs>